I'm Walt Davis, the RUF campus minister at Samford. It's a real privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, this church has been a blessing to RUF in a host of ways. Uh, two of my close friends, Adam Venable, he used to do RUF at UAB, who was uh, worshipped here at this church, and Joe Johnson, another one of my good friends, he used to uh, do RUF at Birmingham Southern, both worshipped here. And uh, y'all cared for them in a really special way, and I just want to say thank you so much. Um, you know, we, we need to kind of level real quick. I don't know which one of us drove them away. Uh, it has to be one of us. I, I was their RUF community, you were their church home, and they're gone, right? So somehow, we've got to figure that out, and I saw Miles Gresham here. Marsha Gresham hosted us like five times at her house, so I don't think we can blame her. Um, but somehow, and I will also mention, I'm going to break confidence with Amy Hudson real quick. Uh, I had lunch, I had uh, coffee with Amy Hudson this week, and she just said, one thing is to ask her how things were going, she just said, one thing that's so good is I just love my church. Um, and so I just want to say, as an RUF campus minister, uh, a lot of churches support us in various ways, um, but I don't know many in Birmingham that have directly cared for ministers the way this church has. So I'm just really thankful for that. Um, personal aside, as we uh, look at this passage, um, I was with a number of friends uh, from high school uh, a few weeks ago, and we were sitting there talking and catching up and uh, talking about high school stories, and uh, one of them said, you know, some story that we laughed at several times, and then another story was shared, another story was shared, and then we kind of reached that point in the conversation where we all took a breath and kind of sank in that, you know, we're not in high school anymore. And one of them said, God, life's different now, isn't it? I was like, Phew, no kidding. Um, we're in our 30s. We're not 17. And someone said, you know, it's almost as if uh, the curtain has been pulled back on the world. And what that person meant was, uh, since high school, there are both deeper joys in the world than we could have known at that time. And there are deeper sorrows. Um, and what a strange thing that is. Exactly a year and uh, four or five weeks ago, um, our one-year-old was born. And he was, uh, it was a really smooth delivery. He was just a big, fat, butterball, happy, healthy baby. And uh, we were really happy, meaning I was terrified and my wife was ecstatic. Um, that same week... Uh, I got word from my cousin that they had lost their child in their second trimester uh, in a really um, rough miscarriage. And I just remember sitting there in that moment thinking like, isn't it strange that in this world, on this side of eternity, two things, immense joy and immense sorrow can coexist? Isn't that strange? Um, and that is the way it is on this side of eternity. And one of the questions I want us to bring to this passage this morning is this. On this side of eternity, when we are acquainted with sorrow far more often and far more deeply than, than we'd want, um, what does it look like for God to confront our suffering? What does that look like? So look with me at uh, Luke 8. I'll read a portion of this. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, 
who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. What would that feel like as you approach the shoreline? Well, they get to shore, and one of the first people to get to Jesus is a man named Jairus. It's important to see what the text says. He's a ruler of the synagogue. That means this guy mattered in society. We know his name. Uh, He comes, and kind of as modern-day society would probably function, and, and the way the story would play out as well, the important guy gets to Jesus first. And uh, he would have been seen as a respected, strong person. But there's a situation in his life. There's a crisis. His daughter, most scholars say when the text says uh, he had an only daughter, what that means is this was his only child. So here's this respected man who had been a leader in society. And I just want you to notice his posture. He falls to his knees. No more trying to uh, pretend that he's strong. He doesn't care if he looks desperate. He is desperate. He falls before the knees of Jesus and puts his need before him. Jesus, I have a daughter who is dying. And a glimmer of hope kind of breaks into this tense, heavy scene, right? Because here's Jesus. And if you know anything in the past with Luke, he's capable of miracles And Jesus hears the request and heads to his house. Okay, this could actually end okay. But as just would happen today, if a Savior walked through Birmingham, Alabama, Jesus can't get to the home of Jairus before someone else comes up to him with a very real need. A woman with a discharge of blood for 12 years reaches out, grabs the fringe of his coat, and Jesus stops and tends to her. Pauses in the action to tend to something else. And hope kind of breaks in again. Wow, he healed her. Maybe he is capable of taking on the burdens of this town. And just when you think, okay, hope's still alive, the saddest verse in this story comes in. Verse 49. A messenger comes to Jairus, taps him on the shoulder and says, your daughter is dead. Do not bother the teacher anymore. There was a, uh, well, there was. There's a movie you're all familiar with. Uh, it's a movie called Gone with the Wind. And um, I'm no confession, I'm no Gone with the Wind, you know, uh, major fan. But I did watch the whole darn thing, okay? Start to finish, I grinded that thing out. Had a shoulder surgery uh, my first year of marriage. Because I played uh, two-hand touch seminary football like I was 18. And when you try to do that at 28, you end up in the hospital. Um, so I had shoulder surgery and I'm sitting there with nothing to do. I watched Gone with the Wind. And there's a scene in there. It's not a, a well-known scene. But where there are, it's a Civil War movie. There are wounded uh, soldiers lying on the side of a battlefield. And the camera zooms in on the physician. And the physician is in a rush, trying to care for all these people. And you can just feel the situation is beyond the capabilities of this physician. And then, when you 
the camera zoomed in, you, in this, in the immediate context, you feel that. And then the camera zooms out and you just see more and more and more people in need and feel the desperation more and more. I imagine that's what it would have been like to be a disciple here and, and stand beside Jesus. Holy cow, this is a lot of people. They have so many needs. Is Jesus up to this? Okay, he's going to go try to heal this daughter who seems to be hanging on for dear life. Oh, wait, there's been an interruption. Someone else who has a serious health issue has come to him. Whoa, he healed them. But the daughter passed. Just feel the hope leave the room. Verse 50. The best two words in this whole passage. Messenger comes, taps Jairus. Jairus, tell the teacher your daughter is dead. Don't trouble him anymore. Verse 50, first two words. But Jesus. Don't miss that. But Jesus. Sadness has won. But Jesus. Hope is gone. But Jesus. Your daughter is dead. But Jesus. Jesus goes to Jairus' house. He enters, and Luke's details are almost too vivid for us. Mourning has already started. I mean, can't you imagine being the mother? Do you catch what she does? She laughs. Wouldn't you? Here you are. The saddest moment of your life has just unfurled. And in walks someone who claims she's just asleep. I can fix this. Wouldn't you scoff? Almost like, please, don't turn this sacred moment into some sort of sham. Don't try to pull a stunt here. This is a sacred time. Just let it be. But Jesus. Jesus walks up, another vivid detail, and he takes the 12-year-old by the hand. He takes her by the hand, and then he just speaks. I want you to notice this. Death, Satan's greatest weapon, has overtaken this household. And here's God confronting it. Here's God in the flesh and Jesus confronting it. And he just speaks. He says two words. Child, arise. No sooner had the words left his mouth. Dun, 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 dun. Heartbeat. Chest expands. Chest falls. She's breathing. Eyes open. Muscles contract. The text says she sits up. And just to make sure no one misses exactly what's taking place and that no one's doubting what's happening before their very eyes, you know what Jesus does? He calls for the kitchen. Would you bring this girl something to eat, please? And she eats right before them. Sadness at one. Death had won. Tragedy had won. But Jesus, and Jesus enters and makes the sad situation untrue. He rolls back the tape and the daughter that has filled this family's life with joy has just been given back to them. That's our Savior. The enemy's greatest weapon, death, Our Savior speaks two words, and death goes running. 
Just as God the Father speaks at creation, and what happens? Um, oceans come out of nowhere. Mountains spring up. Planets are put in place. Jesus speaks. Death runs. We want, in sad situations, compassion. And there's great news. Jesus is full of it. We're going to see that here in a second. But you know what we also need? We need great power. We need someone who can actually overcome the sadness in our life. That can actually undo the things that evil has brought into this world. Jesus presents himself as that. I think if this really broke into our lives, right? If we really believed that uh, Jesus was capable of doing the very thing that Luke records here... If we really believed that death didn't have the last word, it would impact our life in a a lot of ways, one in particular. I'm amazed, even on a college campus, as healthy as you're going to be, right, 18 to 22, even on a college campus, how much the brevity of life impacts the way students live. I'm amazed at how much the brevity of life impacts the way I live. How obvious it is sometimes that I know my days are numbered. If it's true that Jesus can overcome death and that death doesn't have the final word, then I think one of the things it does is it frees us from having to do everything our hearts desire now. Right? If it's true that this life isn't the only one, and that eternity sits on the horizon, isn't it true that we don't have to cram ten lives into one, like I often try to do, right? Our desires, our hearts, which were made for eternity, the desires are infinite, and yet our number, the days of our life are few. The good news is, Jesus actually can hold out eternity for us. And if that's true, then some of the things that we, the urgency with which we live our lives, can actually slow down. The things that we feel we have to have now, I have to be married now, I have to arrive professionally now, I have to be financially secure now, I have to travel the world now, I can take a breath. This isn't the only life. Eternity sits on the horizon, and Jesus is powerful enough to give that to me, and he wants to give it to me. Because here's the reality. This 12-year-old girl is not the only girl to whom Jesus is going to go up to and say, child, arise. One day he's going to approach your, your body, your lifeless body. And he's going to call you son, daughter. And he's going to say, arise. And it's your heart that will begin to beat again. It's your muscles that will contract. It is you who will sit up and find yourself in eternity with the only person who can satisfy your heart, which is the Lord, and it will be that way forever with all that is painful removed. That is the reality and the hope that the gospel that Jesus brings to us. And because of that, in this short life, on this side of eternity, we can take a breath. We don't have to cram 15 lives into our one. Lastly, Compassion. Um, we've seen Jesus' power, right? And we've seen hints at his tenderness as he takes the girl. I love that image. He takes the girl by the hand. 
This isn't just some power play. He's tender as well. But man, do we see his compassion here with the one with the discharge of blood. Can we come up for, for air for a second? A bit of comedic relief. You know, our, our man Peter, he's always good for some comedic relief. Um, verse 45, I think it is. I just want you to see this. I find this funny. Um, Jesus is in the crowd, right? The crowd's pressing in. I mean, no telling how many people there are huddled around him. And Jesus asks the question after the woman touches his garment. Who is it that touched me? Peter doesn't miss a beat. I got your answer, Jesus. Don't worry. I know you're confused about this, but guess what? I'm not. I got you. He says, I don't know if you noticed, Jesus, but there's a lot of people. The crowds are are pressing in. I think that's what happens. You came into contact with someone. No, Peter. No, that, Jesus knows who touched him. Thank you for your suggestion. That's that's not actually what's going on. You've got to appreciate Peter. But what has happened? What has happened is that a woman, and notice this, we don't get the woman's name. You have two characters, Jairus, respected, synagogue leader. And then there's a nameless woman who has an issue. Jairus has the competence to come straight up to Jesus, address him verbally. The nameless woman creeps up behind him, slinks through the crowd, just wants to touch his garment to be healed of the discharge of blood she's dealt with for 12 years and then slowly creep away, go totally unnoticed. What's interesting is that Jesus won't let her do that. He won't let her get away. He, in some ways, gives her exactly what she wants. I just want to be healed from this, from this uh, condition that has cost me all my money and I want to retreat away quietly. And Jesus does heal her, but he won't let her go quietly. Why is that? Look at verse 47 with me. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Notice that for all this woman's life, this condition would have driven her into isolation Anyone that came in contact with her would, would have been ritually unclean, so likely she was extremely lonely. She's totally broke. Um, and what we find in this story is that Jesus is happy to tend to those who society says are important. And then with the one with the discharge of blood, we learn there are also no, no unimportant people in Jesus' kingdom. There are no unimportant people here. Jesus stops dead in his tracks and turns around. And then he does something that jars us at first. He draws all attention to her. Why would he do this? Why, when, when she's clearly insecure and fearful, says she's trembling, why would he do the very thing she wants to avoid? Here's why. What, what, what happens if this woman goes back and tells a neighbor, Hey, I'm, I'm clean. Don't worry. I'm good. I, you, I can be restored to society now. I'm, I'm fine. Who... It's been 12 years. Who's who's really going to believe her? But what if? What if Jesus, the authority, God in flesh, the one who everyone respects right now, who everyone's come out to see, what if he pronounces in the presence of all that this woman has been healed? She can be restored. She no longer is someone to avoid. She can be included. And here's the beauty of this. Not only... Are there no unimportant people in Jesus' kingdom? 
There's no insignificant detail in the lives of those who Jesus loves. Notice this. He healed her. Isn't that the main thing she wanted? He healed her. Jesus isn't done. No, 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 no. I want you physically healed. I want you socially healed. The healing Jesus brings is whole. It is complete. And I hold that out for you this morning just with a lot of hope to say, in God's kingdom, he is father, you are his child. There is no detail of your life that he does not tend to and is not aware of and that he doesn't care about. I was listening to a podcast not long ago, and uh, it was a conversation between uh, a musician and a former president. It was just because the two people being interviewed were such an unusual pairing that I listened to it. The former president was talking about fatherhood and becoming a parent, and uh, and he was talking about how what that transition was like for him. Then he talked about being a senator and had the demands that actually took. Uh, and, and how often he had to be away from his family, and then how that escalated during campaign season. Uh, he was away for weeks at a time, how brutally difficult that was for him. Then he said this. I thought this is this is really interesting. He said, however, after winning the election, a pleasant surprise was that it was actually easier to spend time with my family as the president than it was in years past, simply because when you're president, everyone comes to you to meet. You determine your priorities. You determine the schedule. So I got to set my schedule. And unless I was overseas, we had dinner every night as a family at 6 p.m. This is so good. So no matter what crises were going on in the world, at 6 p.m., I was going to be absorbed with stories about annoying boys, weird teachers, drama in the calf, and Harry Potter. Question. What in the world is the president of the United States... Arguably the most powerful figure in the world, tending to foreign crises, hunger, war. What is he doing talking about Harry Potter and annoying boys in the calf? Here's what he's doing. He's being a father. And as a father, there's no detail in his child's life that he won't care about. He cares about it completely. What is Jesus doing? Jesus knows the father Better than anyone else. And he knows the father relates to people as his children. And that there is no detail of their life that he doesn't care about. And Jesus is here embodying that. And here's great hope. That kind of attention. That fatherly attention. Where the details are all significant to him. That's the way he relates to us. And in time, every detail will be worked out properly. There is no longing that won't be satisfied in him. In this text, we see that we really have a savior. One who is willing to confront the difficulties that we face, severe as they may be. We have one powerful enough to undo and defeat them. And we have one compassion enough to care and see that the redemption and the restoration has done completely. Let's pray. Lord, you are who we need. In fact, you know our needs better than we do. That is difficult to believe at times, Father. 
But would Jesus be real to us this morning? Would His healing power be real? Would His compassion to the details of the lives of His brothers and sisters, would that be real to us? And would that change the way that we go out into the world, that we might be people of love, people of compassion, and people of hope? Amen.